Coming up in this episode. Within the next year, North Korea will be able to launch a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile. That's the word from a new Defense Intelligence Agency report. The concern in the U.S. is what North Korea might do with that capability and what the U.S. might be forced to do in response. Let's say it's a preemptive move. It's a missile that's been launched. We think there may be a nuclear warhead on it. We have not only the right, but we have the obligation to take that missile down. That's Joe Detrani, the former U.S. mission manager for North Korea. And according to him, that could lead to a lot more complications. Is the U.S. ready to face what may be coming sooner than expected? We'll examine it in total. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The Defense Intelligence Agency would not comment on reports that they have come up with a new assessment that indicates North Korea could have a nuclear-capable ICBM ready by next year. What we did learn, though, from the intelligence community is that they're not surprised by this. So what are the implications and actually what did they learn about this? We spoke about it with actually the author, one of the authors of the Washington Post report that broke the news. On the phone with me is my old friend Joby Warwick from the Washington Post. And Joby, you've been around for a good while and you've been doing excellent work for a long time. But this piece of work that I've seen from you uh, and your colleagues at the Washington Post really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. North Korea could cross IBM threshold next year. U.S. officials warn in a new assessment. Break down what you learned about this assessment from DIA. Yeah, nice to be with you, JJ. The bottom line is that North Korea just seems to be advancing much more rapidly than anyone expected, even our own experts who study this all the time. If you look at sort of the arc of the last decade or two, they've been making slow, steady progress on nukes and missiles. A few tests a year, lots of failures. But just in the last few months, really just in the last four or five months, we've seen this much more ambitious schedule of tests and just lots of milestones being achieved that we thought were some years away. And when our folks who really study this thought that uh, that uh, a real ICBM, a reliable ICBM, was, was probably two, three years away, they've had to redo their calculations, shorten their timelines. Now they're thinking it could happen sometime in 2018. So, you know... Asking the the Defense Intelligence Agency about this, they would not comment on it or say anything except they're not surprised. But give us a sense of just how concerning this is for them. This is really concerning. And we've talked to people who were part of the process who were very aware of the report and read the report. And this is alarming to them because they're in the business of trying to, to forecast really military threats. The Defense Intelligence Agency looks at at military intelligence around the the world and tries to prepare our troops. 
and they are saying now that uh, we can't predict uh, that uh, next year there's not going to be this this new ICBM threat, and not just a prototype. This thing that we saw that went up on July 4th had the range of an ICBM, and that was an important threshold. But we were thinking that well, they still haven't tried it with uh, a heavy warhead, you know, as the payload. They haven't demonstrated that they can do reentry into the atmosphere. These are very difficult technical challenges. But now these uh, military analysts are thinking that. Those are within North Korea's grasps, and perhaps uh, not many months from now we'll be able to see those uh, capabilities demonstrated as well. Joby, what did you learn about the other issue that goes hand-in-hand with this, and that is the the alleged uh, miniaturization of nuclear weapons to go on the top of these uh, warheads, or rather these on these missiles, once they do get them to a point where they're uh, they feel as though they can actually launch them. Uh, what, what have you learned about that process? So this is the thing that everyone is still waiting to see what North Korea is capable of. We can see the progress on the nuclear, on the missiles rather, because they demonstrate them on a fairly regular basis now, and not just distance, but they're, they're, they're able to use solid fuel and all these other advances that just make them much more capable. But the one thing we don't know is whether they can actually put a miniaturized nuclear warhead, one that's small enough to fit inside the nose cone of a, of a missile. Uh, what we can see is they've shown off some prototypes, some things that they say, well, this this is our new prototype for a miniature nuclear warhead. Is it a real one or is it just a prop? Nobody knows for sure. What we do know is they've tested five uh, devices so far. The last one seemed to be pretty impressive just uh, from from the yieldage, so about 20, 15 to 25 kilotons is the range of estimates for how powerful that is. That's a pretty powerful bomb. And we don't know if they've managed to get that firepower into a small warhead, but they claim that they're very close, and there's really no reason to doubt them. Were the people that you spoke to able to give you any insight into why North Korea is doing this? It's the one thing that that everybody does seem to agree on, that this program, this ability to make a a nuclear-tipped ICBM, is the one thing that that Kim Jong-un cares about more than anything else in the world, certainly more than the well-being of his population, from economic development, any other you know, uh, goal or, or thing that you would think a leader would want to attain for his people, that is secondary to the goal of having this, uh, this weapon. The reason is he thinks this will be the ultimate guarantor of the survival of his regime. If he can have a nuclear-tipped uh, nuclear missile, uh, no one can challenge his leadership, the, the, he, he thinks. And the Americans, the South Koreans, the Japanese, no one would dare try to bring, bring down his regime as happened in Libya or in Iraq and other places. So this is his one uh, ace, and he's planning to hold on to it for, for all it's worth. Were they able to share any discussion about options if North Korea does arrive at this point within a year or in the next year? and decides to engage, were they able to talk to you about what the U.S. could or would do? This is where it gets uh, really depressing when you talk to experts about what's possible. Obviously, we're putting a lot of money and effort into missile defense, and that clearly is something we have to do because we have to be prepared to defend our cities best we can. Some of that technology is not totally there yet, so it's, it's, it's not clear that we'll be able to, to shoot down everything the North Koreans would send. The bigger thing is to how do you stop this program, and that's where the options are very difficult because uh, we've tried getting help for the Chinese. The Chinese have, have helped somewhat, but uh, they don't have 
you know, complete leverage over North Korea. And in any case, North Korea doesn't seem to be amenable to giving up its its program under any circumstances. So then it becomes a question of do you try to just contain this threat? Is there some other way that we can undermine what North Korea is trying to do? Uh, there are options, but they're all bad ones. And the worst of all is is a military strike because most experts are telling us there's no way we could take out the entire nuclear program, and we would certainly launch a war that would be hugely destructive across the, the Korean Peninsula, probably wiping out tens of thousands of lives in uh, South Korea, if not more. Joby, what haven't I asked you about that you think is important based on what you learned from talking to uh, the folks with knowledge of this report? What's been interesting to me is, is to learn just how much uh, the North Koreans are putting into this effort in terms of resources. They've gone from, you know, playing with old Soviet designs, and we saw a series of missiles that were basically modified scuds, and they weren't all that impressive. But they've thrown so many resources at this, getting more help from outsiders, including electronics and other things they managed to smuggle in, to the point that they, they really have a sophisticated engineering program that's, that's quite capable. And on top of this, you have the other weapons programs. There's a, there's a chemical and bio program that we know about, a proven and demonstrated chemical weapons capability, as we saw just a few months ago when Kim Jong-un used uh, a poison gas, VX, to kill his own stepbrother. So this is a, a, a country with a lot of capabilities and ill intent. And so you, uh, you, you, know, you really can't ignore any of these possibilities if you think about what may happen in the future from North Korea. That's Joby Warwick, reporter extraordinaire with The Washington Post, been a national security uh, juggernaut, if you will, for many years. Uh, not that many, actually, because he's not that old, but been very good at it. And uh, we admire your work very much, Joby. Thank you for taking some time to talk to us. It's a real pleasure, J.J. I always love to hear your shows. Now, for some analysis on this depressing news, but interesting news that because we need to know about it in order to adjust and to deal with it, we have Ambassador Joe Detrani in studio with us. He's the former U.S. mission manager for North Korea. Ambassador, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. You know quite a bit about all of this, and you spent some years, uh, very distinguished years, with the U.S. working, the U.S. government's end of this. Where are we now, and what's North Korea up to? Look, North Korea, on the 4th of July, launched an ICBM. They launched an ICBM sooner than most expected. I think many of us who were watching it were not surprised, but it was a successful ICBM launch. It could touch the United States, certainly Alaska. They're working on a KN-08, which is an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile that will touch the whole of the United States. The last missile launch they had was very, very successful on the 4th of July. Nuclear, they've made extreme progress over the last few years. The the last nuclear test was approximately 30 kilotons. The first test they had in uh, 2006 was a one-kiloton event. They've miniaturized their nuclear weapons. They've miniaturized it such that they could mate it onto a delivery system. The question is, how well can they mate it onto a delivery system? The fact of the matter is there's some people like myself who believe they're very close, if not there, mating these miniaturized nuclear warheads to missile delivery systems to include short-range, intermediate-range. We saw an IRBM, an intermediate-range ballistic missile, which they called a Kwasang-10, launched successfully. Over 4,000 kilometers. It could reach Guam. It's mobile. 
solid fuel. That means it could move anywhere, and we can't see it. These are capabilities that North Korea has developed, as you correctly said, during the reign of Kim Jong-un. And they've done this within the last five and a half years. So, yes, there probably will be. No, there probably there will be another nuclear test, and there will be another missile launch. And I, I, I'm concerned the next missile launch will be truly an intercontinental ballistic missile that reach the whole that can reach the whole of the United States. Ambassador, one of the really critical concerns here, as Admiral Mike Mullen said at an event that you were attending uh, several months ago, the um, Council on Foreign Relations, he said that North Korea won't go through a test phase once they've developed this capability. They're actually testing it on the fly. So we could find ourselves in a situation where we wake up one day and realize or find out that North Korea has actually launched a missile with some kind of nuclear weapon on top of it. And that's just outright frightening. And I'm just wondering if there is a way in which any kinds of heads up on any of that is possible. That would be very tragic if North Korea even even went down that road, even thought of that, because that would be suicidal for them. I just don't see them doing something as uh, as uh, threatening and provocative as that. But do you agree that they could, based on the pattern that they've employed with their missile development, uh, you know, just, you know, essentially wake, get up one morning and, and, and we know that supposedly, as you said, they're working to mate, and do you, do, we, do you agree that that's even possible? That is possible. There's no question that is possible. Because North Korea is not looking for the accuracy. When we look at our missile deterrent capabilities, we're looking for very accurate systems. And we know exactly what's going to happen. We know exactly where it would detonate it, et cetera. God forbid it should ever be used. North Korea, the sense one has, having watched them for over the years, they're not looking at that granularity, that that precision. They're looking at something that's really going to get mm. everyone's attention. So mm. yes, I agree with that. They have to be careful, however, because if you put a nuclear warhead on the tip of a missile and that missile doesn't successfully get launched, it could it could detonate on their own turf. Mm-hmm. So that's a factor. But yes, I, I agree with Admiral Mullen. That is a very that is a possibility. And there's also another possibility. Mm. And that's EMP. The electromagnetic pulse. pulse, exactly. And it's, explain to us what that is. You don't need any precision. You launch a missile with a nuclear warhead, and anything above 50,000 feet, and it gets into the atmosphere, 50,000 feet, you detonate it in that space. It could take out the grid. It will take out the grid. It would, it would fry the grid. It would have such major impact on the area, the, the area, and that's a rather significant area, depending on the height of the detonation. That's even more frightening than what you said before. But to bring some context to some of this, General Selva, the the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said uh, what you just said, North Korea, based on their understanding, um, could launch a rocket that could reach U.S. territory, but um, they can't precisely say where it's going to go. They can launch it probably get it here, but can't be precise, no no, no accuracy involved in any of this, which leaves all sorts of concerns for everything in between the launch point and the landing point. And I'm simply wondering, what is the world thinking? What is the world going to do? 
Well, this is why it's so important to have significant missile defense. Uh, what we're doing with our THAAD system, the terminal high-altitude area defense system, what we've deployed with our South Korean allies, what we're doing with our allies in Japan, with the Aegis sea-based and land-based missile defense, and certainly what we have in the United States, you're absolutely right. These missiles, North Korea has reached the capability with their nuclear program, the miniaturization, the miniaturization of their nuclear warheads, and they continue to produce it. We have to remember they're producing more nuclear weapons every day, plutonium-based, uranium-based, and they're making great significant advances with their missile delivery system. So, yes, there's no question. And I agree. They're not necessarily looking for great accuracy. They're looking for something that, as they say, is a nuclear deterrent. It's telling the United States, Japan, South Korea, and others, we have a nuclear weapons capability. So be mindful of that. And they keep thinking back, and they will tell us. They told me that a few months ago when I met with their vice foreign minister. We remember what happened to Gaddafi in Libya. You expect us to just walk away from our nuclear weapons capabilities? And we saw what happened to Libya and Gaddafi, Saddam and Iraq. We're not going to do that. So we have a ways to go. They're going to keep working on this. So that means we have to be very, very careful and very diligent in missile defense and other ways. But look, let me just say this also, JJ. The trajectory is not a very positive one if you're going down this road. Mm -hmm. Because we're looking at they're building greater capabilities. We're mm -hmm. looking at greater missile defense capabilities, uh, a better alliance, more, if you will, a joint military exercises with our South Korean allies, hopefully bringing Japan into that equation. We're doing more sanctions, secondary sanctions on those third countries that are dealing with North Korea. Those are all very necessary steps. But we've got to get North Korea to stop. We've got to get them to stop launching these missiles. We've got to get them to stop having these nuclear tests. Because eventually, eventually, hopefully not, there could be a miscalculation, there could be an accident, and there could be proliferation. Mm. It could get into yeah. the hands of bad actors, a rogue state or a non-state terrorist actor. Who knows? Yeah. We've been talking about North Korea and its nuclear weapons for years. And there's another piece to this. It's the humanitarian situation. Two people have died at the hands of North Korea that we know about uh, very publicly in the last few months. It was Kim Jong-un's brother he, who was killed by the Korean regime and Otto Warmbier, a student from the University of Virginia. The longer this, this protracted situation with the nuclear weapons goes on, seems to me it would just embolden them to continue behaving the same way they are on the humanitarian stage. What's your view on that? Those are all excellent points. Not only is North Korea an existential nuclear threat now to the United States, but indeed for a number of years to South Korea and to Japan and to that region. But this leader, Kim Jong-un, over the last five and a half years since, he, since he's been in power, has been brutal. He rules through fear. As you just cited, he killed Kim Jong-nam, his half-brother, VX nerve agent. What he did going back to 2015 to his uncle, Jong Sung-tek. And, and this is a person that you knew, who you, you've said to me was a good man. Uh, all indications are, yes, this was a man who visited China many times with his father, Kim Jong-il. This was a man who believed in, from all indications, economic reform, the need to do things, 
possibly to emulate China with what they have been doing with their economy. He was very close to China, in fact, visited many times, even on his own. But he was the number two person. He was the person who permitted Kim Jong-un to come and take over from his, his deceased father in December of 2011. And he, that's the kind of thanks you get. This is suggesting that some people have said that his father, Kim Jong-il, was a monster. But um, he looks like a very kind person based on well, this, his son's I, behavior. I totally. Uh, there's no question about it. He has been brutal and what he's done, not only to the people we're mentioning, the Jiang Sung Techs of the world and the, the Kim Jong Nams, but over 150 very senior military, mm. security, yeah. and party members. These are senior people. And he's just. And they've been killed in very brutal ways, too. He's, they've taken them out. And a lot of it is visible. They, they, yeah. they, they bring even young people to witness these executions. Teaching so them is, a lesson. Well, that, that's a lesson, it's a message. And that, you know, so you're absolutely right. There are humanitarian issues here. There are 23 million people in North Korea. Uh, many of them are malnourished. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, there are two sides. There's the nuclear side. There's the humanitarian side. But in the middle is Kim Jong-un. And again, back to the question, I interrupted you before you could answer it. The thinking about dealing with him. Is, is there any significant thinking about that? Look, I mean, the U.S., let me just say... Uh, the U.S. has reached out in the past to talk with Kim Jong-un's representatives. You know, as you know so well, we have these track 1.5s. I, in September, October or last year, I met with their vice foreign minister. Six months before that, again, with the vice foreign minister. But these are not formal officials to officials. These are, we're former officials to their officials, their vice foreign minister. So they are... There is a there is an, uh, uh, a non-official dialogue going on with North Korea, but what we need, and you're absolutely right, is an official dialogue. Uh, I think the U.S. has been very clear with North Korea, saying if you're prepared to denuclearize comprehensively, verifiably, irreversibly, we're we're prepared to sit down with you. North Korea said we're not prepared to make that commitment, and we're not going to give up our nuclear weapons. So there's been no there's been no dialogue. I think where we are though. I think where we are now with President Trump, he's put everything on the table from preemption to negotiations, is that the key is to get North Korea to the table, but to the table halting everything they're doing. Hmm. You just can't sit at the table and have negotiations while they're launching missiles and having nuclear tests. That's intimidating. You can't do that. Unfortunately, we've done that in the past. So we've learned from those past mistakes. And I think what we're saying now I don't know. I'm a former official. I don't know what the, the government policy is. But I think there is there is a willingness. And certainly we shared that when we met with the uh, North Koreans, uh, you know, on our unofficial dialogue. We said basically halt what you're doing and sit down. And the North Koreans response would be you stop your military exercises. And we heard that from the Chinese most recently. And then the Russians agreed. You halt all your military exercises with South Korea. And we're then prepared to halt our nuclear tests and missile launches and have these discussions. Well, that's not a level playing field. Yeah. You know, we have we have joint military exercises for decades with our South Korean allies. They're defensive in nature. What North Korea has been doing with missile launches and nuclear tests are all in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. They're members of the United Nations. They should adhere to those resolutions. Mm -hmm. So that's not level. Hopefully... And I'm, uh, you have to be, you have to have some hope. Yeah. Because the trajectory is 
a very, very dismal one if there are no no negotiations. Yeah. When's the last time you met with someone from North Korea? This would have been uh, the late September, beginning of October of 2016, over eight months ago. So a lot of people that I've spoken to, uh, and I'm assuming by the same token, you've spoken to a lot more high profile and a lot more informed people, that... A number of people have asked the question about, is it possible to replace him? Are the North Koreans aware that people may be thinking that? Or well, are they, first let me ask you, are people thinking that? Do you hear that? Well, you know, going back to 1994, when we had the agreed framework, many people were saying there would be regime change from within because there were so many issues. In 1994, when Kim Jong-il, his father, took over, it never happened. I think the consensus is really... This man, Kim Jong-un, has consolidated power. He's not going anywhere. He has is, he is, uh, removed any potential, uh, if you will, adversaries domestically and so forth. So I think, I think the consensus is we have to deal with what we have, and he's consolidated power, and he's the man in charge. Now, there are many things we don't know about North Korea. I mean, no, North Korea, you know, uh, you know, in many ways is, you know, uh, an enigma. So there could be dynamics from within. I mean, you could rule through fear, but we've seen that in other countries, and certainly we've even seen it in South Korea with Park Geun-hee, the, the president Park Geun-hee in 1977 when you know, uh, one of his uh, senior officers removed him from power. But I, I, I think that is something that uh, it's, there's always that possibility. Is it likely? I, I don't subscribe to it being likely. Don't you think it's likely, though, that North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, is going to realize eventually that he's got these nuclear weapons, uh, supposedly. He's got these delivery systems, supposedly. uh, And he's been threatening the U.S. and other countries around the world. He's got this humanitarian disaster. uh, And at some point, the world is going to put its its heads together and come after him. Uh, What do you think North Korea would do if that were the case? North Korea makes it very clear, and this came out in our discussion with the vice foreign minister uh, uh, when we last met in late September of 2016, when he was making it the case that North Korea's nuclear weapons are not ever to be used. It's, it's a deterrent to deter others from doing anything to them. I think Kim Jong-un feels secure because of what he's accomplished with his nuclear weapons and his missile delivery systems, but also cyber capabilities, chemical capabilities, biological capabilities. I think he knows. And with this conventional, conventional, look what he could do to Seoul within the first hour to second hour. I mean, we're talking about, you know, over 10 million people in that area where he could, where he could cause great harm, significant casualties within the first hour. So he knows he has such capabilities that I, let me just be blunt, that no one's going to mess with him in a, mm-hmm. a, in a military sense, knowing that he will respond. And I do believe, I do believe he would respond. If he felt threatened, if he felt threatened, I think he would respond. The question has to be, would he respond in kind? Would it be proportional to the event? If it's a kinetic event, Let's say it's a preemptive move. It's a missile that's been launched. We think there may be a nuclear warhead on it. We have not only the right, but we have the obligation 
to take that missile down, to defend our country and our allies, and so forth. We take it down. He will respond to that, but, ho- but hopefully he has, he's smart enough and he has advisors smart enough to say, be mindful of the fact that we were threatening the United States and, their al- and its allies. So if we respond, let's do it judiciously because then we would come back in a big way. However, if it's not what I just described, the preemptive, if you will, surgical strike on something that's an imminent threat to the United States or our allies, and it's much broader and so forth, and he sees this as as a prelude to regime change, I think he would go way out Mm. to use all his capabilities. Have you seen any evidence of him backing down on any occasion? I've not seen him back down on any. That's a very good question. His father did back down, and you know we go back to the uh, the Axe Tree. This goes back to 1977 in the, uh, on the DMZ when three of our uh, soldiers were pruning a tree and they came over using axes and and uh, and killed one and wounded two of our uh, our compatriots, our, our soldiers in the, at the DMZ, and then we brought in uh, B-52s to the region and we made it very clear we were just going to. And, and there was a move to, and I mean, you could literally, those people who monitored the events at that time, you you saw a decision obviously made at the highest levels. And this would have been Kim Il-sung uh, moving his troops back, back yeah. away from the DMZ, yeah. not wanting confrontation. We've not seen anything like that from Kim Jong-un. We've not seen him back down. On the contrary, we've seen him escalate, escalate. And as we speak, whether it's a YouTube or whether it's a KCNA commentary, of making soul a sea of ashes and also cities in the United States taking those cities down using nuclear weapons. This man is brazen. Yeah. All right. North Korea has a lot of balls in the air. They've got uh, nuclear, most likely. Obviously, they've got some conventional weapons. They've got chemical weapons, cyber. What happens if there's a mistake? Well, as, as we progress... And as the situation becomes even even that much more tense, and North Korea has even greater capabilities, as we've discussed, with intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear warheads, but also chemical, biological, and indeed what they're doing in cyber. Uh, as the threat becomes even greater, the chance for miscalculation becomes that much greater also. Because there will be a response. There has to be a response to his... That's why we're talking about not only missile defense, we're talking about sanctions, but also secondary sanctions. Uh, we're intensifying joint military exercises. And we're bringing a trilateral approach to it, bringing Japan into the equation, sharing intelligence. Bringing, so there are, there's, a, there's a whole, if you will, menu of things that the U.S. and its allies are doing to respond to North Korea's escalation and threats. So as that continues to move in that direction, there is, that, as you correctly stated, a chance of miscalculation uh, of, or of a, an accidental um, uh, use of a, of a weapon or something that's purposeful that speaks to proliferation. Uh, it could be a proliferating a nuclear weapon or device or fissile material. So, yes, you're absolutely right. That, that's, that's why we've got to stop what's going on. We've got to, we've got to move it in the other direction. We've got to bring bring the players together, certainly get North Korea to sit down and stop what they're doing now and to start negotiating with them because they have a list of demands themselves. Mm-hmm. JJ, they, they do have security concerns. I mean, look, it's a, 
and you know this so well, you study the country. I mean, this is the, the, the Korean Peninsula over 2,000 years of recorded history, 500 inv- invasions occupied by China, Russia, Mongolia, Japan. Uh, so, so when they speak about a nuclear deterrent, they're very serious about it. They say, as long as we have this, you're not going to mess with us. Uh, what we got to do is move them in a different direction so that there is some trust. So they feel that we are not a threat. We're not looking at regime change. What we're looking at is a responsible state, a state that treats its people well, does away with those gulags, a state that's not threatening its neighbors, certainly in South, in South Korea or Japan, a state that sits at the table. And we, we move towards, eventually, a more normal relationship and ideally a normal relationship. And, you know, Jim Clapper just a few weeks ago put into play, why not have interest sections in the respective capitals? Well, yes, this was discussed in, two, in, in the year 2000 when Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Madden Albright was visited North Korea and met with his father, Kim Jong-il. Let's have an interest section in our respective capitals. Uh, so, yes, that's the tr- that's the momentum we need. And we've got it's the first step that's important getting back to the table. And right now they want to get, they're prepared to come back to the table. They tell us this in, in our informal discussions, mine with the vice foreign minister, and we're hearing this from Wang Yi, the foreign minister from China, but they have conditions. As long as we stop up joint military exercises, we can't do that. Because we can, if we continue to cave in and they continue to pocket what we give, we're just feeding. We're, 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 we're permitting them to feel that not only... Their their bad behavior will permit them to extract more concessions from us. That's wrong. We don't want to go that way. We want it to be a level playing field. That means they come back. They don't try to intimidate us with missile launches or nuclear tests. And they put their demands on the table. They speak about security concerns. They'll say about all those joint military exercises. Well, maybe we could talk about scaling one or two of them back. They talk about sanctions. Maybe we could scale one or two of those sanctions back. We're prepared to talk about those things, but not on their conditions mm-hmm. of us ceasing our joint exercises and doing other things that exceed to their requests. Mm-hmm. You wrote recently, the horrific death of Otto Warmbier should be a wake-up call to the United States and China, that we are failing terribly with North Korea. And this was in the Washington Times that you wrote, Kim Jong-un appears indifferent to the death of this young American held hostage in Pyongyang and with the continued detention of three Americans. And you said as well, key to any potential success with North Korea is ensuring that the U.S., China, South Korea, and Japan are united in their goal of comprehensive and verifiable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And I get from reading those portions and the entire commentary, opinion analysis that you wrote, that you believe that all of those countries have to deal both with the nuclear and with the humanitarian together. The nuclear, we've always, in our nuclear our negotiations with North Korea, it's always been nuclear negotiations with North Korea. But the goal for the, of the negotiations with North Korea is to have a normal relationship with North Korea. North Korea certainly wants that with the United States. And we've made it very clear to do that. The humanitarian issues... You mentioned the horrific death of Otto Wambier, the addition of the other three Americans who are still being held hostage in, in North Korea, uh, the gulags that are going on there, in, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people and so forth. 
the response we would get from the North Koreans was, you have a, a menu of all these issues. We'll, we'll never be able to resolve all of them, so we'll never have a normal relationship with you. We say, no, no, no. You can't have a normal relationship with us. But the sign of Quanan is you initially have to stop what you're doing with your n- nuclear threats, mm-hmm. your nuclear program, and start moving it in the other direction as we had agreements in 1994 and in 2005, moving towards... And then in that process, get the security assurances, the economic aid development assistance, et cetera. And then the other issues, when we talk about a normal relationship, we talk about the human rights issues and so forth. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's not only nuclear. It's, it's all those issues. Mm. And indeed, those human rights issues are, are uh, profound issues, as, we, as you cited a minute ago, with the horrific death of Otto Wambier. One last thing on this. One last thing on this. What would North Korea get in return if it essentially changed the script a bit, stopped its nuclear program, and started to clean up its, its, its humanitarian act? Uh, you know, didn't get rid of the program, but just halted it and, and started to, to, to address the humanitarian concerns. Would that be worth anything in the world? That's very good. That's a very good scenario. And some would say that's a very likely scenario. That, I think so. That the, that the North Koreans and China would be supportive of that. Uh, going way back, I remember one of my first conversations with the North Koreans in 2003 was, accept us as a nuclear weapon state and treat us the way uh, that you treat uh, Pakistan and we'll be friends of the United States. And we would never use those weapons. We would be very, uh, uh, very judicious in, in our behavior. And, and the Chinese even have, have alluded to that going way back to 2000. And this came out even most recently in my discussions mm. with their vice foreign minister in September, late September 2016. Uh, uh, you know, accept us as a nuclear weapon state. We would be a very responsible nuclear weapon. We would be friends of the United States. And, and, and now we're hearing rumblings from others who are saying, look, maybe if North Korea would halt what they're doing now, cap their programs, they retain what they have now with significant monitoring and verification to ensure they're, they're being monitored and they will never be used. And if they do work on their humanitarian issues, that's a very positive development. So you could see where, of course, we could have a dialogue with them. Of course, we could have momentum movement on that. Then, And indeed, if they're working on humanitarian issues, release, immediately releasing those three Americans. Hmm. Uh, giving some visibility to those gulags and showing that they're, 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 they're uh, destroying and, and, and uh, addressing those human rights issues in regards to their own people. I think that would be very, and also their illicit activities, I might add, because they do counterfeit cigarettes and pharmaceuticals. Those would be all very positive, but I think eventually. That would be a first good step. You could see intersections, maybe liaison offices, but eventually, my view, and I think others, others would agree with that, and, uh, is that North Korea with nuclear weapons, by definition, would lend itself to a nuclear arms race in the region. South Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Look, South Korea and, in ta- and Taiwan in the 1970s had clandestine nuclear weapons programs. I mean, wow. they were seeking nuclear weapons going back to the 70s. I, I mean, I think if North Korea has nuclear weapons, I think these countries and include Japan are going to do the same, but also then the potential of those, even if there were a few 
And the assessment now is, what, 15 to 20? It could go up to 100 by 2020. Uh, those few could get it miscalculation or, or bad yeah. information be used or proliferated, sold or inadvertently getting into the hands of a rogue state or a non-state terrorist actor. I don't think we want that equation. So eventually we're looking at, in my view, comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of the nuclear weapons program. Doesn't mean there can't be steps uh, because we're never going to get there because North Korea is not there. They, right now, they're, they are not going in that direction. But the direction we could go in, and it looks like they will go towards, will be halting what they're doing now and getting some momentum there. And that mm -hmm. would be positive. Mm -hmm. If we could halt what they're doing now, getting some, building some trust. JJ, there is no trust and some confidence building measures from both sides. So we have a lot of work to do, but that's where we have to be, we, the corporate we, South Korea, Japan. Certainly China has a lot of levers. You know, China has crude oil. 90 plus percent of North Korea's energy depends on China. And mm -hmm. over 90% of the crude oil comes from China. If China modulated that amount, that would be profound. It would have the attention of Kim Jong-un to come to the table and talk. So China indeed is a critical key player, but so are we, obviously, in South Korea and Japan. So I want to say that, I mean, we have opportunities now, and, and we're at a tipping point now because it's, it's getting bad very quickly. Mm -hmm. And it can get worse, as you said in the beginning of this discussion, uh, also very quickly. We're going to have to leave it there. A lot to think about, a lot to unpack. Thank you. Ambassador yeah, Joe Dutrani, former special envoy for negotiations with North Korea. It's always a pleasure to talk to you because we learn so much. Uh, and it's always good to see you because you're constantly on the move you. and constantly engaged. And it's good to know that there's a person like you still involved in the North Korea situation. Thank you, JJ. And it's good to have someone like you who follows this issue so closely. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. The new Podcast One app is here. There's no other podcast app like this one. Download it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows. You can get more content for Target USA. You can find articles, social media, episodes. You can make playlists. There's so much you can do. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have our own little community there. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scenes photos, get 360 video, or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a 1,000 videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio. Really cool. So many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening and much, much more. 
So be sure to download the new Podcast One app. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of the Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one-of-a-kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcast1.com.